Man, I gotta be honest. I thought getting back on doing this thing was like riding a bike, like you never forget. I forgot so much getting ready for this reinvention, reinvigoration, re everything. So many words for it. Bottom line is this My name is Zunqua Sonye. I'm back in my bag again. It's been way too long. It's nice to be back. Thanks for joining us on this journey, whether you actually pressed play on the very first episode. Was it six, seven years ago? If I'm doing my math right, six years ago. I'm not the greatest with numbers, and I refuse to pull out a calendar because time. But it's been a while. It is so good to be back. And this season, season three, a couple years after I thought I would be bringing it back the last time, is going to be the best of season one and the best of season two together. It's been a pretty crazy journey. I did not think that when I was going to bring this show back that I was actually going to be on air somewhere. In a sense putting this thing together was supposed to get me there. How it was supposed to do it, I have no idea. But nevertheless, to even be in that position is something I am ridiculously grateful for. So why am I doing this again? Well, to be honest with you, it's not because I'm bored. Because whoo-hoo-wee, it's but this something else. But it's because it's finally an opportunity to get out of my shell just a little bit more. It's probably a weird thing to hear from someone who gets to talk and tell stories for a living. Still wild that I get to say that, by the way. But it is a way for me to sort of take the news voice out of it, take the presentation out of it, and just kind of let it all hang out, talk to some cool people, and do some really cool stuff. So at least to kick off this season... We're going to bring it all together. So this is the very long preamble, unedited, by the way, because I'm not really good at doing separate takes or chopping and stuff like that, because I I do all this from scratch. Uh, I do not have the time or the bandwidth to to nitpick. I'm a nitpicker by nature. It's been that way (laughs) since I was young. I don't think it's going to change much now. I'm just going to try to make sure there's not a lot of echo in it. Although I will admit I had one take that I started of this. And I'm like, absolutely not. So this, I promise you, is uncut, untouched, with the exception of trying to take some of the echo out of the room because lots going on in life. So here's where we're at with this season. In season one, I stuck to sports. Did a few culture things here and there. Had some very young thoughts. I was very youngish then. Season two, I did full-blown interviews. Like that was the entire episode. I would pack up my gear, head somewhere, talk to somebody I really enjoyed, somebody I really do, and 
a lot of cool things managed to happen. So in in this this season three, we're going to throw it all together. We're going to segment them. We're going to have a lot of different moving pieces. And it's because it's the first episode that I'm going to explain a good portion of it. Because after this episode, I'm going to just need you to catch up. But if you're listening to this, you have a clue. So, of course, you're going to catch up. So, like I said, three segments. Segment one, you could pretty much hashtag all of these segment names, titles, I guess. I'm supposed to be on social media and tweet things and whatnot. It's not really my forte. I just got to know how to do the basics. Anyone who's good at doing extra stuff, come holler at me. Okay. I'm I'm ready to not have to do that all by myself. Like I said, three segments. The first is going to be stick to sports. The second is going to be the crossover. The third is just going to be straight up back talk. As you can imagine, segment number one is where indeed we talk sports. It could be X's and O's. It could not be X's and O's, but just just ride with me for a little bit. Okay, if sports is your thing, great. If it's not your thing, you're going to learn something. You'll get to impress people. So it's going to be all right. The second is going to be the crossover where I talk to somebody who's proficient in one thing and ask them about something on the total other side of the spectrum. Because for those who don't know, I I did a pretty bad job of hiding it. Maybe hiding it's not the right word. I'm still trying to figure out how to do all this. But uh, I am also a musician. Get a chance to play, be out. Every now and again, it's a lot of fun. I'm glad to be surrounded by a lot of talented musicians, some of whom will make an appearance this upcoming season. But it's kind of hilarious that at a time that I tried to keep these things way, 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 way apart, I am now choosing to bring them together. Absolutely choosing to bring them together. And... I wondered whether I was going to regret it. I wondered whether I was going to feel as if I was cheating one to emphasize the other. But the truth is, I lost so much time trying to keep one from the other that I might as well just bring them all back together anyway. Hence, what you have now. So, yeah, the crossover means I get to ask one person who's proficient in one thing about the total other side of it. So if I bring in artists, we're going to talk about sports next. And if I bring in an athlete, they got a connection to the arts. We're going to talk about that first and then we'll get into what they like to do and and things of that nature. Like I said, the third is going to be a bit personal could delve into a lot of different things so like i said just keep an open mind it's gonna be an interesting ride so yeah that's your preamble and then the rules of engagement for what's coming next that'll come at the very end of the show okay clear cool let's get started So it's June and we got meaningful basketball, folks. I'm so excited to watch an NBA Finals 
have a bit of a rooting interest and still not be mad if the other team wins. I'm a native New Yorker. And being up in Connecticut means I got to pick my battles. Was I totally unhappy that the Celtics blew the series in seven games? I'm going to use the word blue because of the situation that they found themselves in. But we'll get to that later. Even our guest is going to lean into that a little bit better. But it's just so entertaining to me that this is more of a throwback series than we really ever expected. Because, right, you got a Denver team with a center. And it's kind of weird that I'm using it as sort of a throwback term because the game these days, it really prioritizes being agile, being athletic, positionless basketball. That, that That's what we like to be sold. But even though Nikola Jokic can handle the ball, even though he's the best passing big man I think we've ever seen, he is a center. Do you want to know how he's a center? Want to know why I call him a center? It's because if he gets the ball in the post, he's actually going to back somebody down and try to score. He's not going to back somebody down and try to shoot a fadeaway. <coughs> Carl Anthony Towns. He's not going to back somebody down and then kick for a wide open three. No, if he gets the ball in the post, he's going to go up and he's going to actually try to score on somebody. And that's refreshing to me. It's something that warms my heart. And then for Miami, you've got Jimmy Butler. Who, by my count, is a mid-range jumper shooter. Bad English. Leave me alone. You know what I'm trying to say. Because on a Miami team with three-point shooters galore between Kevin Love, who started, Max Strews, Gabe Vincent, Duncan Robinson, Jimmy Butler, instead of trying to chuck, only took five threes. Shot two for five, which by my count is 40%. I've heard that's good. En route to scoring 21 points. So he didn't have to chuck a bunch of threes and play outside of his game to be useful. What a novel concept. But throwback stuff aside, this series is actually a lot of fun. It's just so much fun because no one thinks the Heat are supposed to be there. I don't think the Heat are supposed to be in the finals. But they did, and they don't mind telling everybody that they deserve to be here. We keep asking them about it. We're kind of supposed to. But I think that's the vibe that they give off. They, they don't care. We keep hearing over and over again about their undrafted players. Yes, we know they have undrafted players. Matter of fact, I, I, I'll, I'll go this far. Out of all of these players, the one I've most recently seen in person was Max Struess when he was at DePaul. And I never would have thought dude would have made it to the league. But I do know that night he made a lot of fans unhappy because that was one of DePaul's rare wins. We just kind of said, get out of my way. 
And that's just who the Heat are from top to bottom. And then on the other side, you've got the Denver Nuggets. And you've got a Nuggets team that seems to finally be reaching its potential. Except the most annoying part about even saying that is that we have a nation full of supposed basketball fans that are acting like Nikola Jokic being the guy that he's been is some revelation. There's certain things I really hate about basketball. And one of them is that it just inspires the laziest takes. I find them super lazy. We talk about individuality with everyone's games. We talk about the things that they do well. We talk about the things that they don't. And it's almost as if that Nikola Jokic being seven feet, 280, and not running 17. Like, if you made Nikola Jokic try to run 17s like most high school teams do, he's a world-class athlete, but... Even I got questions about whether he could pull off running a 17 in a minute. I do have those questions. And yet people look at the numbers and go, oh, he's probably not that good. He's just stat padding. Just say it and watch him. And don't get me wrong. They're in the mountain time zone. If it's not all the way west or all the way east, sometimes the teams in the middle get lost. It's okay, just say you didn't watch him. But don't be lazy. He been doing this. And it's just fun to watch a lot of people who claim they know the game of basketball kind of eat their words. Like I said, fun. But the Nuggets also are suffering from, I think, what I will now call Celticism. Do you know what Celticism is? Celticism is what I freshly termed just now. I kind of wish I wrote that down. But it is what I term as what happens when you, at any phase of your life, are playing with your food. I would break down what that idiom means. But just know that playing with your food would get you yelled at at the dinner table, would get you yelled at in an athletic setting, and might kind of get you fired at work. Because that means you're just not taking care of basic things. And what plagued the Celtics more than anything, I won't call it overconfidence. Because at a certain point, overconfidence, when it gets turned on its head, turns into fury. And fury means, oh, word, you caught me with my pants down? Okay, it's time to go get you now. And there's at least a sense of pride there. But Celticism just feels blasé. It's, oh, we're more talented. We'll be fine. Until you're not fine. And then it's, oh, I wonder what happened. You can say all the right things in the press conferences. 
You can say all the right things. In interviews, you can say all the right things, even to each other. Like, I remember reading an article where, you know, I believe it was an assistant that doesn't speak up much in the locker room that said, don't let one bad week ruin your entire season. And that turned into a full-fledged story because a team with, let's face it, way more talent than the Miami Heat just got outplayed. And this is a team that had all of the weapons to be back in the same position they were last season. Not a chance. But instead, they're at home, which the New Yorker and me is grateful for. And if you have any Nick slander for me, you should press pause right now. I will not accept Nick slander. Just so we're clear. But it's also nice to have a matchup where coaching stability also plays a role. Right? Like, you look at the carousel. And mind you, the coaches that got fired, you kind of could see it. I didn't like what they did to Monty Williams in Phoenix. I think that's the case of an overactive owner just getting in and saying, oh, I'm going to steer the ship. That's not going to age well for them. I'm hoping that Frank Vogel, after dealing with LeBron and AD in L.A., can deal with a cantankerous Chris Paul, Devin Booker, and Kevin Durant in Phoenix. Because at least them dudes, not for nothing, even in the bubble, at least them dudes kind of sort of complimented each other. I don't know what you do. With an old CP3, Devin Booker being the best shooting guard in the league, and Kevin Durant. I mean, let's let's backtrack because Vogel's a really good defensive coach. At least, I just don't know if that threesome in its current state will help get you what you want. This is where James Jones and the rest of that front office earn your bread. Do what you got to do. But yeah, I didn't like what they did to him in Phoenix. Coach Bud, it's unfortunate. I, I My heart breaks for what he had to go through, but the writing was kind of on the wall. You can't be the one seed and uh, losing five games. You can't blow a double-digit lead at the crib in a game where you needed to win to stay alive. That's It's kind of hard. But instead, in this finals, we have Eric Spolstra, who survived the Heatles and is sort of putting the whole, the bubble finals and it's fake. That talk is kind of on its head because they did it for real this time. And they had a very tough road as the eighth seed. They did what they were supposed to do. But he's been consistent and been able to build consistency. And then we get Mike Malone, who, for my money, is probably very, very grateful that Sacramento did him so dirty those years ago. Because there's one thing that coach will do 
that we don't often see done effectively. And that's tell his players to the media that they're playing bad and that they'll respond accordingly. Like those dudes will play for him. Sometimes you don't see it. And on the biggest stage in the game that they really wanted to have at home, he called him straight out. I can't wait to see how the Nuggets come out of the gate. But guess what? If the ownership was way less patient with Mike Malone, not sure this nucleus gets here. As great of a player as Jokic is. With the reemergence of Jamal Murray, finally reminding us who he is. Shout out to people who are again saying that the bubble was worthless. Michael Porter Jr., finally healthy. Aaron Gordon, finally thriving. It's, it, it's nice to see that, especially after he got rubbed after that dunk contest. Nevertheless, this finals has everything. Everything, everything, everything that I could ask for. Just wish the Knicks were in. All right, segment went over. It's time for the second part of this. We call it the crossover. It's the first episode. Like I told you, it's going to be a, a hodgepodge of different things. And I decided for episode number one, I'm not going to be fair. See, I met this brother when we did Yale-Harvard grudge match. He's a Yale guy. I'm not going to bag on him for that. There's no reason to bag on him for that. But he is a two-time state player of the year in basketball, correct? One-time state player of the year, but two-time state champion. See, there we go. See, that's why I'm glad that we get it straightened out. Also, Yale alumnus playing overseas in Israel, Brandon Sherrod. Welcome to the podcast, brother. What's good? So the whole point of the crossover is to take somebody who is proficient in one area of life, and clearly you are a professional basketball player, but then talk about something totally different. And the reason why I say it's unfair is because I'm the one who found out, I think it was you who told me, you took a year off to sing acapella? Yeah, a lot of people don't even, you know, know what I'm talking about when I talk about the whiff and poofs of Yale. <laughs> you gonna need to you gonna need to elaborate for us. Yeah. So basically I, I went to Yale for for three years, played basketball, and then in between my junior spring and and the, my senior fall, I ended up auditioning for this group called the Whiff and Poofs. It's the oldest or it was the oldest all male collegiate acapella group in the country. I think it was founded in the early nineteen hundreds and um just a crazy history of big time musicians, songwriters, and Yale alumnus that were a part of it. So I, I auditioned for the group. I, I got in, the audition took like 15 minutes. Um, got a, a, auditioned on a Thursday, got a call on a, on a Sunday, and then ended up um, getting in and embarked on a world tour where we went to 26 six countries and, and then also um, got to meet a lot of cool people, dignitaries, and went to some US embassies abroad. Um, but I also had to take a year off of school and basketball to do it because our tour schedule was so intense. So it was pretty dope. So then along those lines, you why did you opt to lose a year of basketball to chase this? Yeah, I mean, when you go into collegiate sports, I feel like 
you lose a part of yourself. You know, you don't really have time to do anything other than basketball or whatever your sport is. And I found myself really struggling to uh, just have basketball as my main focus. I had a, a couple of groups that I auditioned for, acapella groups in my freshman year. And then I realized as we started to have like rehearsals, then we had practices, then we had uh, games and we were traveling and I had to make sure I was holding it down in the classroom. It was just too much. So I decided to, you know, forego some of those musical projects to just focus on basketball. And I still kept my hands in some, some different things and met some people along the way. But um, that year was just really formative for me because I needed that rest. Um, I needed a, a chance to pursue one of my dreams, which was to you know, be a full-time musician and a touring musician as well. And then it was a perfect situation where I was able to take that year off of school so I didn't lose any eligibility. I was able to come back and play and I got to travel the world and I got to experience everything that Yale had to offer and live like, a, like an actual college student for a year too, because it's very intense when you're an athlete. So what year did you take off? Well, did you play, you played freshman and then took off sophomore? No, I played freshman, sophomore, junior, and then took off what would have been my senior year. Whoa. And then came back and, and finished up. Yeah, so my coach was, he, he was a little upset about it. You know, he was, he was like, cause I came in with a group of guys, you know, Javier Duran, Armani Cotton, Will Childs Klein, Matt Towns. We had a big class of guys who came in originally with me. And we had really started to like take Yale basketball from being, unknown in the Ivy League ranks to being known. And so when we got to the point where it was, you know, our senior year, we were primed to win a championship. And so when I went to my coach and told him, he actually found out from reading the, the Yale Daily News. You yeah. don't know, no, yeah, you let yeah, the media yeah. tell him first. I didn't, I didn't know, I didn't know. I was, <laughs> I'm like, you know, I got into the group, I'm sitting there, I'm like, you know, coach, my coach, I don't need to tell my coach, I don't need to tell anybody. I think I told my best friend. Right. And maybe um, my girlfriend at the time that I was auditioning. So I was like, if I get in, I'll figure that out later. But if I don't get in, you know, Whatever. yeah, yeah, no one's, no one's got to know. So um, after I got in, I wake up the next day and there's an article in the Yale Daily News saying like athlete gets into the whiffing poofs of Yale. And I'm like, oh my God. They put it on the front. Yeah, I'm front, front, <laughs> I was on front street. So I'm like, I didn't think it was that big of a deal. I'm just like, I'm another person who got in, but they're obviously you have to take a year off of school. So, you know, people are thinking, what is this guy gonna do? This is unprecedented because athletes don't usually try out. And I was also a contributing member of the team too. Right. I wasn't sitting the bench. So that was another thing. And then um, I went to my coach. He was like, can you forego um, this opportunity for a year? Can you defer and then go and take it like after you're done? He was like, I was like, that's not how it works. You know, like, <laughs> like this is not how it's gonna go down. And, uh, what, what, one thing that he told me when I was getting recruited to Yale was that Yale affords you with certain opportunities that are once in a lifetime and you can't find anywhere else. And so when he presented me with the option of deferring, I was like, coach, like, now you know, when I, was, when I was about to be a freshman, when you were recruiting me to come here, when I was about to commit, you told me Yale affords you with certain opportunities you can't pass up, and this is one of them. So um, I was pretty determined after I, I told them to, I, that I was gonna come back. He asked me if I was gonna quit the team or if it was just like, you know, a break. So I assured him of that. And then from there, we were, we were rocking. Mind you, you played on how many Ivy League championship teams again? That was just, just the one, but the year before, like that year I ended up taking off, they won a share of the Ivy League championship and they lost to Harvard in like a play-in play game to play get into the, yeah. yeah. It's not like now where they got the tournament. Like those dudes are living so, so nicely. Like it wasn't <laughs> like that back in the day. You had to like win the league for real. So, um, but it was a great opportunity and I, honestly, it changed my life. I hadn't traveled outside the country before and going from zero countries to 26 in one year is crazy. So I was very, very blessed um, on some real, so. 
do you do anything musically now? Because now that you're a pro, your time is your own. Right. But do you do anything in the medium now? Yeah. So my, my rookie year, when I went to Italy, um, I recorded a cover album. We did eight songs in English and two in Italian. And uh, we won an award. It was the Paolo Borsellino Prize for social engagement. And Paolo Borsellino was a, a journalist who was killed by the mafia when he spoke out against them. But through that award, we rose uh, 10,000 euros and 5,000 went to a school in a city that had been affected by an earthquake. The other 5,000 I brought back to America and then bought my old high school like a new PA system and speakers mm. and stuff like that. And then donated um, some basketballs to one of my friends like um, basketball training companies as well. So the philanthropic efforts were there and the musical piece was there too. Actually, one of the girls um, who sang background on it, her father was a piano player and he also sang, but she ended up winning X Factor um, Italy. And now is like, famous so shout out to elisa if she listens to this but um it's just an incredible incredible opportunity so did that and then i released a couple of singles when i was in italy my third year and then um have like produced and co-wrote on a bunch of projects with artists both like in israel italy and uh and in america so i'm keeping my hands in the in the pot it's so interesting because when people talk about balance right mm -hmm. i mean and, and i think you can speak to this because sometimes when we look at athletes right if you're not living, breathing, sweating your sport 24 seven, it's gonna be as if, oh, you're not really committed to yeah. it. Like, I feel like when people watch The Last Dance, right? right. <laughs> and, they, and my favorite line in The Last Dance is when Michael Jordan goes, oh, well, you know, people say, we well, might not have been a good teammate. Oh, I, I mm. might not have been a nice guy. Mm. Well, that's you, because you never won anything. <laughs> I'm like, yo! <laughs> yeah, Mike Wild, Mike Wild for that, <laughs> for real. I think, I think the interesting thing is that, um, you know, people, should never assume that athletes are monoliths. Like I say this all the time, at, at, at base, first and foremost, we're human. So like there's already differences that we have naturally based on where, we're, where we were born, how we grew up, what we believe, et cetera. Then we're basketball players and that's not who we are, it's what we do. So as long as you're you know, taking that time to focus in on your craft and you're performing well on the court and understanding that it's still a game and having some, some level of fun with it, I think it's more than okay to have multiple interests outside of just playing basketball. And then when you look at it too, you know, the game's gonna stop someday. So I would much rather have a plethora of interests that I'm totally into aside from basketball as opposed to putting all my eggs in one basket. And then when it's over, I'm like, what, do I, what else do I have to show for my life experience? Um, or what else do I have to show for the interests that I've tried to cultivate or the gifts that God has given me? So. Um, I'm, I'm just a huge proponent of like people being multifaceted and and um, and making sure that they're not just locked in on the, on the game all the time because there's more to life than just basketball. Let's start at the beginning. When when did music actually start being a thing for you? Yeah, when I was young, I grew up in church and my mom uh, would just be singing around the house. My mom's a big time singer. She led praise and worship. She was in a group before um, we were had. Any of the kids were born, and she actually threw that to the side to become a mom, to become a believing woman, and then just wrote, like literally raised us in the church. So I learned how to play piano in church. I learned how to play drum set. That was my first instrument. And I learned how to harmonize and then uh, or, uh, arrange music. So I was leading praise and worship for a while. And then over time, you just learn how to perform on the fly. So my, my musical ear got a lot better because you can't be back there and Bishop is in the key of A flat and then you went C. You know what I'm saying? You, you can't be a Bishop. I'm like, come, come on now. That's you know? a that's a shot to somebody. Right. Please know your keys. 
Right, right, it, it right. Happens. For the keys players, like you know, you got to be, you got to come correct. So just having the ability to improv and and um, and being able to to galvanize people to like sing the right notes and like understanding some theory, but then also seeing how gospel was the base for R and B and neo soul. I couldn't even listen to anything else until I was like thirteen, for real. Hey. You know, we ain't play that in the house. You know what I'm saying? So um, that's when it started for me back back in church, and that's kind of where um, you know my, my base has really always been when it comes to music. If you could look back at your young, if your younger self could look at you now, do you think they'd be super pleased? Do you think they'd be like, yo, what happened? What do you think? Yeah, they'd be like, yo, what happened? <laughs> for real. Yeah, I was, I was, um, I didn't really play sports growing up. I played baseball and soccer. I didn't start playing basketball until I was 14. Whoa. So like a lot of people don't know that I'm a super late bloomer when it comes to, um, you know, the sport. And I feel like I'm still learning things now, even at 30, which is crazy. So uh, my younger self would have been like, there's no way that you would play Division One basketball. There's no way you'd be an overseas athlete. There's no way that you'd be able to, to have the athletic piece and the musical piece still a part of your life. And there's no way that you would have all this life experience uh, up to this point. So I think my younger self would definitely be proud of, of the man that I've become. Um, I think it might be slightly upset that I didn't pursue music as like a career path, though, because I feel like that was something I thought about um, a lot as a kid. A lot. I have one more question. Yeah. Do you see? Do you see that actually being a thing after your playing days are done? Because you're mm -hmm. still in. You're still pretty much in the prime of your career. Right. Right. Now I, I don't know. I honestly prefer songwriting and like producing as opposed to me being like the the star or like the the focal point of any group or even me being like a like a solo artist, like that doesn't necessarily attract me as much as like the actual process of creating the tracks does. Cause I just love the feel of being able to be in a studio or at the crib and like find the right chords and find the right beat that fits and get into that pocket and like bop out and then share it with somebody and like, yo, I want to write to that. Or like, we're now writing to the song that we just made like five to 10 minutes ago. So I love that process for me. That's refreshing. It gives me a lot of life. Um, but as a solo artist, I just don't know I don't even know if I really want that lifestyle for real. Mm. That's another thing. That is fair. I mean, speaking of lifestyles, we might, we might as well go back to the sports <laughs> bit because that, that was not going to be avoidable. <laughs> so I have to ask first and foremost, as a former collegiate student athlete, I don't like the term myself, but I'm just mm -hmm. using it because habit. Yeah. The idea of NIL, it must be crazy Man, listen, I... I would have made a lot of money had there been the NIL. And I remember I was doing, when I got into the Whiff and Poofs also, like it wasn't just a local story. Like I, I got national acclaim for that because I was taking a division one athlete takes a year off to sing. It's like, where do you, well, where you, where you see that at? Like where they do that at for real. So I went on uh, CBS, but I had invitations from Good Morning America. Um, had an invitation from Saturday Night Live, all sorts of like crazy wow. opportunities. But I can only realize one because of the bread you know like they that would have been a improper benefit had i received any money for an appearance on any of those shows but like the marketability of an athlete a singer who like takes a year off and then comes back and then you know i found a lot of success my senior year i could imagine that going very well getting locked into local businesses etc so you know kudos to these kids for making the money but i'm sick you know i want, <laughs> I want reparations for real <laughs> Like for real, like, yeah, like no, no cap. I really, I also think that there maybe should be something like, you know, um, 
that, that, that's, that would be years in the works, but some way to maybe compensate certain athletes that didn't get to cash out on opportunities that they had. Um, because there are so many people that would have done really well. And I think the game would have changed and we would have been able to see like the real impacts and effects of NIL uh, now, as opposed to, you know, the next five to 10 years, we're still gonna be figuring it out. And it might be like a pay for play sort of situation. And that's kind of being seen in like the transfer portal, et cetera. See, what's so interesting about that for me is that I don't think when it comes to NIL that we as a society mm -hmm. really are willing to embrace that. Yeah. Because the idea of playing something for, oh, for the love of it, for the fun of it, it's all cool until, really, in my opinion, until you get to high school. Right. Because once you get to high school, right. it's a pseudo-professional sport. No doubt. You're pulling in pro concepts. You want your kids to train as if they're playing at the, lex the next level, even if they never play at the next level. Right. So that if they say, oh, I went to this high school, they go, whoa, that means something. Yeah. And I'm not quite sure if we are comfortable with the fact that these are young adults with the opportunity to... To change their lives. I mean, someone yeah. like Flaw, Flaw J Johnson is dropping Man, records. She making, she making bread, bro. And I was just thinking about like Flaw J, that could, you know what I'm saying? I could have been doing right. something similar. We could have been at we could have been at Sony. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So my thing is, my thing is like, um, unfortunately, the world that we live in forces kids to grow up much faster than they actually should. And so um, it's just really a part, it's a new part of the game. And so now, since there are new rules, you're gonna start to see new advents of agents and, and NIL companies and, and then schools that are really keen on getting the best talent. Um, and that helps some people, but also can hurt a lot of industries too. And I also think the pressures of, of giving a kid X amount of dollars and them not really knowing what to do with it, that's really harmful if you don't have a way to educate or um, take care of them or you don't want people to like be predators and trying to like take their bread either. So there's a lot of dynamics. I think it's, um, at the end of the day, end of the day, good because they should be making money off their image and likeness if the university can be making bread off of their performance. All right, all right, all right, all right, all right. Couple things. First and foremost, again, special thanks to Brandon Scrod for joining us on the crossover. As you can probably surmise, we talked for way longer than that. And I was going to save this for the very end of the podcast. But like I said, it's the first one. Rules of engagement are important. So anytime we got a weekly episode, you'll get the first 15, 20 minutes of our conversation. Really cool stuff. Get a chance to learn some new things or rehear some things you might have known before. The full unedited interview will be out on every Friday that there's an episode. So the podcast will drop Tuesday and the crossover interview in full will drop Friday. So trust me, there's way more where that came from. Just so we're clear. All right, third segment time. And it is time for bag talk. And I said it, I think on my social media posts that it's gonna take a little bit of a risk I'm going to take one here, too, in a sense. Um, and this actually go a lot more personal than I was initially intending to go, but here it goes. So as far as 
religion, faith-based, whatever it is that you want to call it. I, I am a Christian, or at least I try really hard to do the right thing. It's the best way I can put it because perfection on this side of eternity, that's just a losing game. <sighs> Help me, Father. Anyway, there was pretty seismic news in the Christian world with the passing of uh, Reverend Tim Keller. First and foremost, my condolences and prayers with his family, his church congregation, and, and all who knew him. I was not somebody that even got a chance to, to meet him, but I did get a chance to hear him speak. And what I want to sort of end our time together talking about is impact. Now, how could a dude I've never, I'd only seen once, it happens, but how could a man I'd only seen once be someone or have done something to impact me so greatly? Well, I'll tell you. See, back in November 2018, um, I was working with an organization that allowed us to go to what was called the Forum for Justice Conference. And that conference was based in New York City. And it was a real opportunity from what I had read there for there to be some sort of racial reckoning within the church. And this is 2018, so it was way before George Floyd, the pandemic, all that sort of stuff, right? And so I was intrigued. I'm like, huh, I wonder what they're talking about. You can imagine my skepticism spit high. Don't need to expound any further than that. But on we travel. I get there late because I was taking the train in. And immediately one of the first things that I saw was a presentation on the model minority myth. And immediately I'm hooked. There was no mention of politics. There was no mention of really anything that wasn't based in like theology and actual history. And I was hooked because I said, whoa, this is a room of, I'm just going to come out and say, this is a room of mostly white people hearing that, hey, it is all well and good that we believe in the same God, but um, there are things that we need to discuss. And it was a two-day conference. So you can imagine for day two, I was, I was ready. I was at attention. And I was looking actually to sit with the group that I had tried to come with, but I did not get there on time. Keep your jokes to yourself. But I get there and I sit next to somebody I don't really know. But, you know, you sit next to someone who you sort of share the, the, the hello eyes with, the ones where, oh, they look nice, they look kind. And I, I sat down. And that's where things got really, really deep. Mind you, Reverend Keller has not spoken yet. But there is a lineup of speakers, one after the other that really, really, really hit home. I really wish I had a recording of it 
to this day. We're talking exhortation. We're talking historical. We're talking historical first person accounts. Everything that's just saying, hey, when it comes to racial reconciliation in the church, we've got a long way to go. And dog, I cried. I'm not someone that's ever said that I'm afraid to cry, but I it was a lot. Because it was at a time in my life where I wasn't I wasn't questioning my faith. But I was certainly trying to figure out where in the world I fit in. And it sort of reminded me that, hey, the things that I've been feeling when things were uncomfortable, it wasn't just about whether I was ignoring conviction. It was. It was real. It was validating. And then obviously Reverend Keller spoke at the end. It's a great, great conference. But what my point of all of this is. Is that. Never happened again. And I looked. If I missed a part two. I apologize. I'm willing to retract, but it never happened again. And I cannot imagine what kind of conversations he was having with all types of people from all walks of life, many who are probably in his congregation that probably said, how could you do that to us? What he did was hard. Because it would have been one thing if he centered himself in every piece of that programming. Trying to be the guy, trying to be the answer. We've seen a lot of those come and go in in the church, out of the church. We've seen a lot of people rise up and, and call themselves those who have the answer to making us all get along with each other. And with the opportunity to do that, he instead made room. Doing hard things ain't easy. And I want to touch back on 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 the flack that he probably got. Because one thing I've learned from experience from both what's happened to me at times in my life and what I've seen happen with other people. You say the wrong thing to people you think are your friends, you might even consider family, and you don't associate no more. They may even disparage you to your face or otherwise. And even somebody as revered in the faith as him. I cannot imagine privilege and all because it's a white guy, right? Privilege and all. I cannot begin to imagine what his email inbox looked like. I don't know whether 
The pews were a little less full on Sunday. I don't know whether people said I'm taking my tithes and offering elsewhere. But man, for little old me, a face in the crowd, that meant a lot. My walk with the Almighty has been far from perfect. But at least for that, really minute stretch of time, I had reason to believe that God is who he said he was. That, to me, made all the difference. Like I said, taking a risk. To be honest, I cannot believe that I said what I just said, unedited. And honestly, once this thing publishes, I'm probably not going to try to hear it back. I'm not going to be okay with that. But hey, you've reached the end of episode one. And I appreciate you being along for the ride. So here's how this is going to go. I've broken down what the segments are going to be week to week. I've broken down the different ways you can keep up. Actually, I haven't done that quite yet. This is going to be available wherever you get your podcasts. Apple, Spotify, all that good stuff. Ain't nobody paying me, so pick wherever you want that you find it, okay? I'm only doing this for four episodes. It ain't because... I don't love it, but because it's hard. And I'm super, super grateful this time around that I ain't doing it alone. I've got real good people helping me. You'll get to see, I don't know if you'll see them. Either way, when stuff comes out from me or in other places, you'll see that I ain't do it alone. And it is both a little scary, but also freeing. Because when very talented people, very smart people get a chance to weigh in and actually accentuate what you got going on, you got a shot to actually make some happen. And some happen ain't even necessarily views, but at their minimum, it's putting out something of quality that I hope you get a chance to enjoy. I hope it gives you something to think about. I hope it gives you questions that you got to find answers to. But again, that's where we're at right now. But it's only for the month of June. After that, not quite sure where it goes. Would love to keep doing it. Maybe I'm biting my own... Maybe I'm blocking my own blessings or whatever by just putting out there that it's limited right now. But look, like I said, rule of engagement, trying to put them out now because I promise you it's going to be smoother next week. That is a promise. It's like riding a bike, right? A little wobbly, but I get the rhythm back a little bit. Talking is not just talking. I promise. But thank you for tuning in. Thanks for making this a part of 
your week, your day, whenever it is you take this in. Thanks so much. See you next week. Thank you.